This is The Guardian. Just a warning before we start, this episode contains racial slurs which are beeped out, but they may be distressing to some listeners, especially Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners. Okay, I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, and this is The Full Story. It started with an historic murder charge of a police officer. There's been outrage from Sydney to the top end after a 19-year-old was shot dead by police. Constable Zachary Rolfe is facing one count of murder. Protesters took to the streets demanding justice. After Walpuri teenager Kumanjai Walker was shot by the police three times in his hometown of Yundamu in the Northern Territory, the police officer responsible, Zachary Rolfe, was charged with murder and two alternate charges. Earlier this year, a jury found Rolfe not guilty on all charges. Northern Territory Police Officer Zachary Rolfe has been acquitted of all charges. Now, a coronial inquest is examining the events surrounding the death. So the inquest is being held in Alice Springs, which is about four hours' drive from Yundamu. It's about 330 k's east of Yundamu. We're three weeks into a three-month-long inquest. That's quite a long period of time. Most inquests don't go for that long, but there are obviously a great lot of issues to get through in this one. And so far, the inquest has unearthed racist texts and an allegation that the Northern Territory Police may have covered up Rolf's use of force during multiple arrests. Today, Indigenous Affairs editor Lorena Allam on racist texts and cover-up allegations in the Kumanjai Walker inquest. It's Friday, the 23rd of September. Lorena, we're... Three weeks into the inquest of Kumanjay Walker, there's been some fairly significant moments already. Can you tell me a bit about how we got to this moment? Deaths in custody are subject to coronial inquest, so the coronial inquest had to wait until the verdict was reached in the trial. Now, a coroner investigates the circumstances around a death in order to make recommendations, in, in order to look at what can be done better. It's a great exercise in hindsight. They go back over a case, they make recommendations about how things can be improved in order to avoid these things happening in the future. Mm. And so far we've heard from family, uh, community members and police officers. And then last week on about day nine, the texts came out. What are these texts, Lorena? The texts that were read to the court were 13 messages in all, uh, exchanged between Constable Rolfe and other serving police officers in the Northern Territory. And they were exchanged in the months before the shooting between about April and September 2019. Mm. And in those conversations, they talked about people they were dealing with in their day-to-day jobs, mostly Aboriginal people. Some of the people were in Alice Springs and in various communities they were deployed to. These texts were read out in the court by counsel assisting the coroner, Dr Peggy Dwyer. Right, so we don't have that audio from the court, but we have recorded these text messages using the transcripts. Can you just step me through them, Lorena? Yeah, so we need to give people a warning. There's some really strong language in this. There's the use of racial slurs, there's swearing. It's um, pretty shocking stuff, actually. So one text in April 2019 starts with a serving officer talking about Rolf's activities the day before. Heard you had a rough arbo yesterday, grubby fucks. No bra, just slightly annoying. Haha, <laughs> c- man. In another text, Rolf complains about locals and their drinking. Just don't get why all this work has got me to the point where it's my job to look after Neanderthals who drink too much alcohol. 
Ha ha. And then there's another one from July that same year where a serving officer describes Aboriginal people using the N-word. Yeah, been a bit hectic. The cops out here have fucked this town. They have been letting the n- drink whatever they want. Ha ha. To which Rolf replies. Bush cops are fucking shithouse. Outside of offensive slurs used by Rolf and other police officers, what else do we learn from these texts, Lorena? They do shed light on what counsel assisting the coroner said was disturbing attitudes held by serving police officers, including Constable Rolf. In one text, Rolf describes how he views his work with the IRT, that's the immediate response team. It's important to note that Rolf was deployed to Yundamu as part of the IRT team on the day of the shooting. We have this small team in Alice, IRTs, immediate response team. We're not full-time, just get caught up from GDs for high-risk jobs. It's a sweet gig. Just get to do cowboy stuff. No rules. And apart from that, there was a separate text exchange, as I mentioned earlier, where Rolf described his work in another Aboriginal community at Borroloola, which is up in the Gulf Country and northeast of the Northern Territory. I'm out at Borroloola, a random community on the coast because they're rioting, but we came up last time they did this and smashed the whole community. So this time, as soon as we arrived, they started behaving. Then there was another text exchange from September 2019 where another serving officer seemed to be apologising to Rolf for an incident that had taken place. Sorry about the stress caused by losing my shit the other night. Stress you didn't need. You sorted it well. I just had enough. He was the second person to press my button that night. And Rolf responded by joking about how it was all good because he would turn his body cam or body-worn camera away. Bro, there was literally no stress about it. I'm all for that shit. I've done the same thing to you more than once before. I'm always ready to make my camera face the other way and be a dramatic in the film. These are pretty revealing texts, Lorena. I don't think I've heard texts like this from police officers aired in such extensive way in the media before. What has the response been to these texts so far? Well, we've had several responses in the court and out. So counsel assisting read these texts to Sergeant Anne Jolly, who's a highly respected officer in the NT police. She spent 16 years in the police force. Before that, she had a long career as a a community nurse. And she said a lot of the skills she learned as a nurse were really, really relevant to her work as a community or bush police officer. She enjoyed working at Yindamur and, in fact, went back there in July last year after the shooting because she really missed the people and felt that she could help and make a difference. Mm. So as counsel assisting showed her the texts and read through them, Jolly was quite shocked. Uh, She said things like they were racist and disgusting. She'd never heard a serving officer speak that way in her presence before, but if she had, she would pull them up because it was the kind of behaviour that was unacceptable. And when uh, counsel assisting put to her Rolf's text about how there are no rules, Jolly looked quite shocked and said, we live by the rules. The rules are how we do our job as police. So outside the court, the NT Police Commissioner, Jamie Chalker, was asked about them on Thursday of that week. And he said they were not indicative of widespread views within the police force. And that he said, you can see the kind of work that I've got cut out for me effectively. There were a lot of work had been done since 2019 to try and make the police force better. He told the ABC that they were doing a lot of work to try and overcome those things. 
I think that this is isolated and that's what we are, are trying to make sure is the case. I think a lot of our police officers uh, hearing that evidence yesterday um, would have been quite shocked by it. It would have come as news to them. Again, that holds the integrity of how we've conducted ourselves throughout this. But uh, Kumajai Walker's cousin, Samara Fernandez-Brown, is not sold on Chalker's attitude. She, she says in her view there is systemic racism in the Territory Police Force and wants there to be disciplinary action against the officers involved. She said outside the court the other day that this can no longer be an argument about a few rotten eggs. At some point we need to inspect the chicken. Lorena, these texts were not heard during the trial earlier this year. Why are we just hearing about them now? Well, the first thing to say, Laura, is that there's a different standard of proof for a coronial inquest than there is for a criminal trial. It's much higher in a trial because obviously the consequences are so serious. The charge has to be proved beyond reasonable doubt. A coroner is just required to investigate and to make recommendations and and can consider all sorts of evidence that that he or she thinks or they think is relevant to their um, remit. Mm. So in the trial, Rolf's defence team very successfully argued that the whole lot of evidence relating to Rolf's past was not admissible because the judge agreed they, that it wasn't directly relevant to the shooting death of Kumajai Walker. But the coroner doesn't have to decide a guilty, not guilty verdict. They're investigating issues. So they can make findings or comments over a much broader remit. And the coroner in this case said she would look at that evidence. Right. So what do we know about the remit of the coroner, about the things that they are keen to look at and weren't really able to be discussed at the trial? Yeah, there's quite a lot, actually. And the main thing is that the coroner in this case wants to look at whether systemic racism was a factor in Kumanjai's death, specifically whether racism, and I'm quoting from the coroner's decision last week here, may have played a role, conscious or unconscious, in the immediate acts causing death or in the broader structures concerning the IRT and its deployment. So she said she would consider all forms of evidence that would help her make a finding about whether that was the case or not. Mm. Um, And this has actually been a really contentious issue in the inquest so far. The first week we heard several days of legal argument from Rolf's team and the team representing the Northern Territory Police Association, who argued that the text messages and other bits of evidence about Rolf and the force shouldn't be tendered to the court as evidence, particularly the messages taken from Constable Rolf's mobile phone. What was behind their arguments that this shouldn't be considered at the inquest? They argued remoteness. So what I mean by that is that the text messages don't necessarily have any bearing on the decisions that Constable Rolf did or didn't make on that day, the things he did and didn't do. And they also said that the texts were open to contextual interpretations. So it's hard to know what was meant by them. On that basis, they shouldn't be seen to indicate any kind of attitude or any kind of tendency at all. Right. One person could read them one way and another person could take a completely different meaning from their text is what they're kind of saying there. Yeah, that's right. They also argued that it would undermine his acquittal verdict. But the coroner disagreed with that. The King's counsel, uh, Dr Ian Freckleton, who was acting for the Northern Territory Police Association, said this is not an inquiry into whether certain sections of the police force hold racist attitudes. They didn't argue with that proposition at all. 
but they want to make it clear that the connection is what's really important. They said it was important so that people were not given the wrong impression that a modest number of offensive utterances be imputed to the whole force. And uh, to do that would to um, diminish the respect with which the police force are held by the general public. They say it's a couple of people saying bad things. It doesn't mean that we're all racist. Exactly. That's exactly what they're saying. What did the coroner say to some of these arguments by the NT police, Lorena? Well, she said that ultimately, if the text messages are evidence of racism by Constable Rolf or evidence of a culture, it might be seen to be evidence of a culture of racism within the IRT or the Rolf's patrol group or it might be an indication of some concerning attitudes in the Alice Springs police station. And if racism did play a role, conscious or unconscious, in the immediate acts causing death or the conduct of the IRT while they were in Yundamu, then uh, she was satisfied that she should be, uh, that they were relevant to her investigations and that she should take a look at them. And then the, the, the way was clear for counsel assisting Peggy Dwyer to read those texts out in open court. Mm. So, Lorena, I know this is a fairly new thing, considering systemic racism in a coronial inquest. Is that right? Well, the the inquest into the death of Tanya Day in uh, Victoria in 2019 did take on and did explore whether systemic racism was a factor in her death. It's a bit of a, a shift in attitudes in the legal profession that they would want to consider this a factor in deaths in custody. So, you know, it's an, it's a very interesting change of attitude. So with this broad remit to look at systemic racism and whether it played a role in the police's decision-making, what other things are we expecting to hear at this inquest? The coroner will call Rolf as a witness in the next few weeks, so he'll be able to to answer for a number of these allegations. But as we know, a series of things came to light after the trial about Rolf's conduct and his attitude to policing, and presumably those will be put to him when it's his turn to take the stand, including allegations of cover-up of Rolf's actions by the NT police force. Right, there were quite a few stories about Rolf that came out after the trial, when the suppression orders were lifted and our colleague Nino Bucci wrote about them at the time, what did we learn in between the trial and the inquest? So there's at least four different cases where Rolf is alleged to have been violent in arresting Aboriginal men or boys in the Alice Springs area. But it's important to say that in all four incidents, uh, Rolf has been cleared by his supervisors of using inappropriate force. After three of the incidents, he was also alleged to have falsified reports and on one occasion was accused of asking a fellow officer to scratch him on the face to make it look like he had been harmed by an offender during an arrest. Mm. The Aboriginal man at the centre of that case, Malcolm Ryder, which was in April 2018, was charged with hindering Rolf in his executing his duties as a police officer and unlawfully assaulting Constable Rolf after an incident at the man's house in Alice Springs. In Alice Springs, the judge dismissed the case against Malcolm Ryder and you know, made some disturbing findings about Rolf accusing him of lying on the stand. Consequently, the, the Director of Public Prosecutions has chosen not to pursue perjury charges against Constable Rolf for that matter. Mm. So to recap, in the lead-up to this inquest, we've learned new details about previous arrests of Aboriginal people by Rolf 
And in one case, the judge has accused Rolf of lying about how that arrest played out. Is there anything else that Rolf is likely to be asked about on the stand? The other allegations have come from his former fiancée, Claudia Campagnaro, who was also a, a police officer in Alice Springs. She made three different statutory declarations to the in 2020 about Rolf, including one allegation she made that Northern Territory Police were required to cover up for him on more than one occasion due to his uh, use of force. Mm. Um, the coroner ruled that some of her evidence might be said to suggest an over-preparedness on the part of Constable Rolf to draw or use his weapon, and others might suggest a concerning culture at Alice Springs Police Station. The team representing Rolf and the team representing the NT Police Association did express concerns to the coroner that her evidence might be considered or needed to be considered carefully in light of their former relationship and her reliability as a witness should be considered. But the coroner said she would hear that evidence anyway. Next, Kumin J. Walker's family and community speak out. Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here with a quick note about The Guardian. As you're probably aware, Guardian Australia's journalism is editorially independent, meaning we set our own agenda. We don't have a billionaire owner, nor do we answer to shareholders, so we're free from commercial bias. And this independence matters because it means we're able to challenge the powerful and hold them to account. Unlike many news organisations, we have not put up a paywall. We chose a model that means our reporting is open to everyone and funded by our readers who can afford to pay. Every contribution, whether big or small, counts. If you're able to contribute and have a minute, head to theguardian.com forward slash support full story. We've also linked to this on the full story page. Thanks. So, Lorena, before the break, we were discussing evidence in this inquest from the police, what we've already heard, what we're expecting to hear. What about the Aboriginal community? What is their role in this inquest? Well, we heard from the, at the very beginning of the inquest, we heard from elders from the community, including Rex Granitz and Ned Jampajimpa Hargraves, and the family of Kumajai Walker, including his cousin, Samara Fernandez-Brown, who spoke about how frightened and distressed everybody was in the immediate aftermath of the shooting. Mm -hmm. And the family have travelled to the inquest to be present and have been there pretty much every day. And our Indigenous Affairs reporter, Sarah Collard, has been there pretty much every day as well. Tell me a bit more about this evidence from Samara and what we've learned about the reaction from the family and the community in the immediate aftermath of the death. So we heard from Samara and from Derek Japangadi-Williams, who was a senior Aboriginal community police officer, uh, who's also Walker's uncle. Samara talked about how the police kept the family out of the loop on the day he was shot. They took him from the house to the station and people sat outside and, and waited and waited for them to come out and tell them news of his condition and they just heard nothing. Mm. Samara actually live-streamed sitting outside the station. We're just exhausted. It's been like four hours. Just sitting out here waiting. All we're asking is to know if he's okay, but no, nothing. Samara said that family and friends believed that Kumanjai was being airlifted to get medical treatment in Alice Springs for his injuries. So the police have just gone two different cars and an ambulance. 
They didn't tell us anything. They're just going straight to the airstrip. They didn't tell family nothing. They just sped straight past. But they only later found out that his body had been in the, the police station the whole time. She said it was devastating. And uh, she felt sick that he was never on that plane. In fact, a plane did arrive, but it arrived with police reinforcements. And what about the community police officer, Derek Japangati Williams, and also Kumanjo's uncle? What did he have to say at the inquest? I imagine he has, you know, interesting insight as a police officer and community member. Yeah, he did say that he'd had issues with racism in the force and that, you know, some officers could be a bit rough and hands-on when they carried out their duties in remote communities. He also said that young Kumanjai had development issues. Uh, he had he had trouble hearing, but he wasn't an aggressive kid. Mm. And in his previous interactions with the police, uh, it would take them like 20 to 45 minutes to explain to him what was going on, that he needed time mm. to comprehend what was being told to him. He said he was low risk. So sending the IRT in to, uh, with Rolf uh, et al., was just unnecessary. He said Walker wasn't a murderer, he wasn't a serious risk. And what he said next backs up Samara's statement that the family was kept in the dark about what happened because Williams, who's an officer himself, he wasn't even told by his police colleagues, he said, that Walker had died until the next morning. Wow. He said he was so betrayed by that that he wanted to quit the force, but he says he stayed strong for the community. Lorena, inquests are really important moments for Aboriginal families and communities to demand change, to be heard. What sorts of solutions have the members of the community offered in this inquest so far? Yeah, so we've got months to go yet and they will have it. There'll be lots of solutions canvassed, if, you know, for a cursory look at the witness list. But the elders invited the coroner to come and learn, come and sit down with them in Yundamu and listen to what they had to say about the reforms they wanted. And they've said, you know, they want self-determination and, and they want service providers, governments, police to work with them, to talk to them, to let them decide how to make their homes safe because they do know what they're talking about. They want the authority of the elders to be restored, to be decision makers. Mm. They want more cultural training and uh, for officers and health workers. They want to be able to jointly make those decisions with police. They want more things for the kids to do in the community. Uh, it said a lot of that stuff just died after the intervention was introduced in 2007. Um, you know, a lot of community programs just dried up overnight. Um, community authority was, was taken away and mainstreamed. And so all of those programs, even a night patrol to pick up kids off the street, all of that stuff was defunded. And, and since then, they have been without any kind of voice to uh, direct how the community wants to live. Lorena, the chief of the Northern Territory Police has already had to answer some really serious questions about attitudes of his police officers. And we're only at the beginning of a months-long process here. Do you think that this inquest could trigger a reckoning around systemic racism inside the Northern Territory Police Force? I don't know how how this will play out. We've got, as I said earlier, there's still a few months to go. There's a lot of information still to be, to be brought to light. But if the coroner finds that these text messages are evidence of a disturbing culture in the Alice Springs Police Station, if she finds that, then it is very 
uh, it's undeniable that the Northern Territory Police Force will have to deal with that. The question has been put to the court, why is it that people in the course of doing their duties feel that they are, it's okay to say these sorts of things so freely? Mm. And while it might only be a handful of people, the fact that they've been said in such an open way surely is cause for a reckoning. That was Lorena Allen, Indigenous Affairs Editor at Guardian Australia. You can read more of Lorena and our Indigenous Affairs reporter Sarah Collard's reporting on the Kumjay Walker inquest at theguardian.com. We've also linked to Lorena's piece from the weekend, which is a really good recap of the, the key evidence heard so far. It's titled Racist Texts Cover Up Allegations. Kumjay Walker's inquest poses big questions for police. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Jordan Beasley, Karishma Luthria and me. Sound design and mixing by Tim Jenkins. The executive producers of Full Story are Miles Martignoni, Gabrielle Jackson, Molly Glassie and me, Laura Mephiotes. Okay, catch you next time. <laughs>